Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Ready to launch a new career or not sure what to do after graduation? Rumkey is hiring for CDL driving trainees. We pay you to get your CDL license while working for us. Driver trainees receive $18 an hour, great benefits, and Rumkey will pay your CDL costs. Once you're a CDL driver, you can earn $1,000 to $1,300 a week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in your first year. Apply today and launch a lucrative career at Rumkey. Apply now at RumkeyCareers.com. Equal opportunity employer. Restrictions apply. following program is intended for immature audiences only. Don't think, just listen. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here at WMCK.FM and also on Fayette TV Channel 77. It's a Tuesday night, the 5th of March, 2019, and we have a special guest on the phone. But before we go, I actually have some audio that I'd like to play to see if uh, you guys can guess who it is before I tell you who it is. There are many ways to say I care about you. Many ways, many ways, many ways to say I love you. There's the singing way. Have you figured it out? It's Officer Francois Clemens from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, and he's on the phone line right now. Officer Clemens, how are you doing this evening? I am just fine. I want you to know that's a spectacular opening that you had before that, that crooning singing came on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> so, wow. So how are you doing this evening, sir? Well, I'm doing just fine, just fine. And uh, I'm, uh, I, I took a little bit of a nap <laughs> sitting in my chair. Uh, while the news was on, you know, I decided that I was just going to check out. Okay. So I took a little tap. So uh, where are you at this evening? I'm in uh, Middlebury, Vermont. I'm back home from Orlando, Florida. I was at Eastern uh, uh, Florida, uh, Eastern Florida State, State, State College. A uh, wonderful friend, uh, new friend, uh, Mr. Roundtree, uh, uh, invited me down there to uh, speak to his classes. Uh, during Black History Month. Okay. And uh, we had a wonderful time, and they gave me a Lifetime Achievement Award, which was a tremendous surprise. Well, that's really and, nice. Uh, to to, yeah, they're trying to make up for, well, they're not, but they're, they're making up for the Oscar snub. And uh, so I, I enjoyed the trip down. Uh, they lo- the United lost my luggage, so I had to wear the same clothes for two or three days. That's always interesting. Uh, so they were supplying me with deodorant and, and uh, lotion and, and, and toothbrushes and toothpaste. And they said, don't forget, now use it, sir. <laughs> so I said, okay, I will. 
So I did. So as I told the audience when we opened the program, you're known as Officer Clemens. You've been Officer Clemens now for, what, 51 years? Yeah, the whole time. Well, yes. I never, technically, I never stopped being Officer Clemens. They started the program in January 1968, and I started filming in May 1968. Okay. So technically, in May, I'll be 51 years old as Officer Clemens. Now, what I think is interesting about this, and from what I've been reading and, and I in the movie, uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor and everything else coming out, you had a real issue about playing Officer Clemens because you had a vague, very negative um, uh, outlook on what police officers were because of where you grew up. Well, I, I share with people that Fred and I had a very, very different uh, childhood. Yes. Different upbringing. And what's so amazing, this obviously was not planned, but I grew up at one end of the spectrum. We were very poor. Uh, I grew up with a single parent, my mother, uh, for the most most of the time. And Fred grew up, you know, next door to the Heinzes and the, the Rockefellers and the, the Skates and all those people. And he uh, had a silver spoon. He had a, a, a limousine taking him to school and uh, you know, he had lots of choices in life. And it was very difficult for him to understand when I told him that the villains in the in the ghetto were the policemen because they were very abusive. Okay. I always make sure when I tell the story that people understand every policeman was not abusive. Right. But, the, you know, the bad ones always give the good ones uh, a, a, hard, a hard way to go, a hard time. Because the bad ones really leave you with quite an impression, and it's very difficult to shake it. They, uh, in Youngstown, just like now, I saw the other day where a young man had been killed, shot in the back. He had no no weapons. He was carrying a, a cell phone. Mm-hmm. And Trayvon, uh, Trayvon Little, the, the other fellow who got uh, shot with, with some uh, candy, he won, went out to buy some candy, and uh, somebody, George, took it upon himself where Trayvon was supposed to be and not to be. And he was in a neighborhood where his father lived and his grandparents and stuff. But the, the, uh, the, the white fellow thought that he he was in the wrong neighborhood. Uh, how do people make these judgments? I don't know. The point being, policemen and people of authority make these judgments about black boys. Right. And they jump to conclusions, and there's, there was some abuse going on. And when they abuse and kill these black boys, they are not punished. They do not do jail time. In fact, frequently, they are not uh, arrested. They're not handcuffed. They're not arrested. And we know cases. I don't want to go into that kind of history right, right. now. But we know that there are cases where white men have even uh, hung black boys, and they have not suffered consequences. There are some, uh, there are some outstanding cases where justice was not done for 40 or 50 years. They were brought to justice mm-hmm. for hanging an innocent person. So we've got this history in this country. Fred had the exact opposite idea and attitude about what policemen do and don't do. And his mother talked to him about them being helpers. So when he said to me, I want you to be Officer Clemens, I was thunderstruck. I was stunned. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally unprepared for that. I knew he was thinking about me doing something regular on the program, right? But I had no idea what it was. And when he said that, I was totally unprepared. So, uh, so, so the, the, we had we had long conversations about my idea of a policeman and his idea. So you you said you came from Youngstown, Ohio, and yes. how did you get from Youngstown? to Pittsburgh to meet Fred? Well, um, I, I was born in Birmingham, Alabama. Okay. And in 1950, uh, my family migrated up north. You know, there was a Katrina-type storm. And oh. so everyone was gradually moving away from the New Orleans-Baton Rouge area because they didn't have anything to go back to. Okay. So we wound up in Birmingham. I was born, and my family uh, gradually through the uh, guidance and assistance of my grandmother and great-grandmothers. They saved money and got us to 
Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio, to uh, a steel town. Mm-hmm. And many of my relatives then started working in the factories, steel mills, automobile factories. So we were part of that grand migration. I, uh, through the help of a social worker and my high school principal and some of the civic uh, people in, in Youngstown, they uh, they uh, were very much aware of my musical abilities. And when I expressed the desire to go to school and study music, they made it possible with a full scholarship to Oberlin. Oh, okay. So I went to Oberlin, and while I was there, I won a competition. And the woman who judged that competition was the head of the music department at Carnegie Mellon. And she as much said to me after the contest, I think you are a wonderful singer, young man, and if you will come to Carnegie Mellon, I guarantee you, first of all, we'll give you a full ride and so many words. And then she said, you'll have lots of opportunities to perform, uh, which was very uh, important to me because there was fierce competition at Oberlin. And I did not <laughs> get, you know, I, I would audition. There was lots of competition. Right. So I did not get a lot of the roles that I went out for. But when I got to Carnegie Mellon, I took her up on her offer. I went down. I sang. They liked me. And so I enrolled for a master's degree. I started looking for a job to support myself. Uh, I lived off campus. And the uh, job that I landed was at Third Presbyterian Church, where Fred Rogers was a member of the congregation. And he heard me sing tenor solo in three or four performances that year. And he, uh, through the, uh, the intercession of his wife, Joanne, he came up to me and said, Francois, I would like for you to, uh, to have lunch with you and talk to you about what I'm doing. I had no idea what Mr. Rogers' neighborhood was and was going in a totally different direction because of my youth and because of my naivete and innocence and dumbness. <laughs> so <laughs> I had no idea. So was the program actually being recorded when he talked to you or did he talk to you after the first episodes were done? He talked to me uh, before. It was a proposal. Okay. But uh, all the element, all the elements were coming together. And if Mister, so, I mean, if Mister Rogers' neighborhood, and I mean, I know this is really hard for you to answer, but if it wouldn't have, if you would have done one or two appearances and that would have been it, what direction do you think your career would have went into? Well, okay, you're asking me a hypothetical. I'll give yeah. you the best answer I possibly can. But I won the Metropolitan Opera auditions in Pittsburgh. Okay. So I tend to think, and then, you know, I made the recording of Porgy and Bess on London Records with uh, Cleveland Orchestra and uh, Lauren Mazel, one of America's foremost conductors. Yes. I think that I would have stressed the opera, operatic side more as had I not had... There were times when I had several conflicts. Uh, I was offered operatic engagements mm-hmm. that I turned down so that I could be with the family, Fred and Lady Aberlin and Mr. Matheny. And there were several times I called Fred and I said, well, how important is this for me uh, to do, Fred? He had written several scripts. And he said, well, as always, I leave it up to you. But, we need you, friends. There's nobody else that can be Officer Clemens. It's right. Like, it's interchangeable. And he was always very honest that way. But he said, if you make the decision, we'll, you know, we'll do the best we can. We'll try. And I felt a very, very powerful, uh, draw, powerfully drawn to him that his work was also my work. It was important to me. It was good work. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Uh, for me. I never felt quite the same way about opera so i thought well i probably need to be here with him to do this uh so and and so that is done right so there were several times when i had the conflict i chose to be with mr rogers okay um but uh if i hadn't been there i would have taken those other jobs one or two in particular uh i i went on several audition trips to munich germany uh to you know uh uh, Cologne and, and Hamburg and Berlin. Uh, I'm not going into all the details, 
But those un, uh, um, uh, intendants and conductors made it very clear to me, Mr. Clemens, if you stay over here, you will have a career. We love you. We love your voice. Uh, we think you're a beautiful singer. You will make, in fact, they kept telling me I would have made a perfect Mozart singer. Uh, that's how rare they felt my gift was. And at the end of, I think it might have been two months, a little more than two months, I received some communication from Pittsburgh, uh-huh. some magical communication that, when are you coming home? <laughs> <laughs> we have three scripts, we have five scripts, six scripts here, and we can't film it until you come home. Uh, and that took some serious thinking uh, on my part uh, that, you know, this is a fork in the road. That's something I would have taken full advantage of. I may very well have lived in Europe because they were so receptive to me as a singer. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel the, the same kind of discrimination. I didn't feel the. Uh, I felt I was being treated fairly. You know, in America... There were times I sang, even though I had won the Met Auditions in Pittsburgh, and even I went to New York, I got into the Metropolitan Opera Studio. I still felt serious discrimination because I was black. I'm not saying it didn't happen in Germany. I'm saying I did not feel it. Right. Because I was given so many opportunities, Mm -hmm. and it kept me busy busy enough. There were things that, that I was invited to do that were eminently successful, that because of my my singing, the quality of my work, and uh, so I would have taken full advantage of those things if I had not uh, been on Mister Rogers' neighborhood. So because of that, I came home. I came back to New York, and I continued my work with Fred. It was enormously satisfying. You have to know that. So that was one of the reasons uh, that I did continue, and I do feel ultimately, you know, and it didn't take me long to look at it. But that was where I was supposed to be. But had I not been doing Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, there's a part of me that thinks I could have had a serious operatic career, the kind that people dream of. But it was not meant to be. Now, you mentioned you were in New York. So were you based out of New York, and then you would come back to Pittsburgh to record the episodes? Correct. I moved to New York in 19, August of 1969. Because after I won the Metropolitan Opera uh, auditions in Pittsburgh, I went on to Cleveland. I did very well. I didn't win, but I did very well. Uh-huh. And the uh, maestro who was in charge said to me, you're ready to come to New York. I will uh, sign uh, some information to you, a letter of a, a recommendation, and I'll let people know who you are, and I'll give you a list. He was my mentor for a short time. That's okay. what it essentially was. Okay. And he introduced, me, he introduced me to the right people. So when you were in New York, um, what were you doing? Um, were you performing on a regular basis? Were you uh, doing pursuing more education? And how did you work your schedule to get back into Pittsburgh to be able to record these episodes? Well, the main thing was there was a wonderful woman, Elaine Lynch, who uh, was the olfactotum for Mr. Rogers. She she really knew everything that was going on, and she was the, the uh, point person, the liaison. So I kept her, I kept in touch with her so that she would know what my schedule was and that she would say to me, oh, yes, you're free that week or you're free for the next three weeks, Francois. And I could schedule stuff in, in between. So if someone calls me and says, can you come to Arizona? Thing. Can you come to, uh, I do an audition. That's the first thing. You do lots and lots of auditions. And they would say, oh, there's a, 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 a certain opera, a certain oratorio being done in Jackson, Mississippi. Are you available? I would say tentatively, yes. I have to check with my management, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's how we coordinated it. And, I mean, that's what we had to do. So we did it. I never took a, a, an assignment until I checked with Elaine. And she was about 99% accurate. That, you know, and that was a good thing right. for people to know that you had something else to do or that you were a regular on Mr. Rogers. The people at the Metropolitan Opera loved Mr. Rogers' neighborhood, and they loved what I was doing. So I had tremendous cooperation from them. 
And as I told you earlier today when you and I talked, that I was uh, part of the first generation that watched Mr. Rogers because whenever it went on here in 1968, I was two years old. So I'm sure you've heard that from a lot of people my age. And I don't know if that makes Uh you feel much older than you are, but um, there's a lot of us out there that learned about opera and that type of performance because of you. Well, it is a bit of a surprise, I have to tell you, because I don't know, I get, whether I'm spaced out or just in profound denial <laughs> as to how old I am <laughs> and what 50 years means, you know. Um, I suppose for, for whatever reason, I have remained about 35. Okay. And you guys passed me up. <laughs> so how old were you when you were on your first episode of The Neighborhood? 24. 24. Okay. So you're 74 so you right 50 now, then. Years. In April, I'll be 24. Uh, so, oh, you'll be 24 in April. Okay. <laughs> the 50th anniversary yes, exactly. of your 24th birthday. You, you guys packed me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, you made a comment about how young my voice sounds. You still sound the, day, the same way you did um, 50 years ago, which is amazing to me because... Um, because of your performance schedule and because of what you've done. Now, do you still perform? Oh, Lord, yes. I told you I just came back from Orlando, Florida. Right. And I've been up to Boston. I, I was up there at, at the uh, Berkeley School, wonderful music school. Uh, I've been to Connecticut. I've been to New Jersey. I was down at Lincoln Center uh, doing the moth and some singing out there in Brooklyn. I also did some... Um, uh, uh, what else was that? Oh, I went down to uh, uh, the University of the South, Suwanee, in Tennessee. Oh, okay. Uh, I did a concert down there. Plus, I got an honorary doctorate. You know, uh, <laughs> it's nice people down there. They appreciate what I've done for fifty years. So, when you uh, when you so. do your performances, what what type of music do you sing? Do you sing stuff from the program, or do you do just a, a, a varied amount of different music? Well, I think the answer is yes to both of your questions. Okay. I'm at the age now where um, I've, I've had a long history. You know, I, I started this group, the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. And that group, for about 20-plus years, toured all over the world, singing Amer- American Negro Spirituals. I arranged them, and I used a couple of other wonderful other people who did arrangements as well. Linda Twine, Joseph Joubert, there were other guys who also arranged. And uh, so I, I definitely filled my time with that. And I also taught here at Middlebury College. I'm in Vermont here. Mm-hmm. And uh, I came here and conducted the choir for a couple of years. And eventually they asked me if I would stay, and they made me an offer that I couldn't turn <laughs> down. Yeah. So I'm curious. It was wonderful. Plus, I learned more about what I was supposed to do in this life by being here, I found a different kind of purpose. Okay. Uh, and it, it bordered on a real ministry for me, which is different than the ministry that I feel I had as a uh, singer and as a uh, conductor of the Harlem Spiritual Ensemble. So my, my repertoire gradually expanded. I sang all spirituals, but then I, I could do Samuel Barber, I could sing uh, Schubert, Mozart, Bach. I do whatever I want to do now. I'm at that stage of not only my life, but my experience allows me to be profoundly versatile. And people like it and people tolerate it. I've done programs of Irish music. I love Irish music. And uh, for 15 years, I used to do the St. Patrick's Day concert here at Middlebury College. I put it together. Uh, I thought the other guys were going to come and take over and say, hey, we Irish can do this, go sit down. <laughs> but they did. <laughs> and so, uh, and, and it became quite a, um, uh, a a point of deep, you know, gratitude and love that I was so, uh, so I was so embraced by the Irish community on campus and uh, in town. Okay. Uh, every year they start asking me, are you going to do the St. Patrick's Day concert? Are you going to do the St. Patrick's? And that been, I, I would do the Martin Luther King concert in January. And I didn't have time to turn around or rest before I was planning the Irish. So every summer, that was part of what I was doing. I was scheduling and planning 
what I was going to do in the fall, what I was going to do at Christmas time, what I was going to do for January, and also for St. Patrick's. Now, see why I never took a vacation. Yeah, I, I can see why you've never gone anywhere. Um, because, I mean, and, and the one question everybody's going to ask you, because of being um, 70, going to be 74 soon, are you are you considered retired, partially retired, or you're never going to retire? No, I, in 2013, I had an experience that um, oh, changed my life forever. I... Um, Essentially, I passed out after a concert. Oh, wow. And what it, what it amounted to was I was pushing myself all the time. Okay. Uh, to do things, to get things done, you know, to uh, not uh, let people down, not let myself down. And uh, I didn't do enough delegation of uh, responsibility and all that. Because other people didn't always seem to have the same commitment to, uh, you know, some of the um, assignments some of the getting things done on time that I do. I like to do things early. As much. Remember I told you I'm going to be sitting there waiting? Yes. Uh, that's, that's sort of my style. I don't wait to do things at the last minute. Well, that compulsiveness uh, is uh, not, not the greatest thing for your health. And uh, so the doctor told me, he said, take some time off and um, stop, you know, being so compulsive. And you're kill- You are killing yourself. Okay. And this the first uh, sign, and there'll be others if you don't take my advice. So I, he said, "You're you're in here basically for stress and exhaustion." I had no idea what stress. I did. I couldn't name it. I felt it, but I didn't know what was wrong. Okay. In addition to all of that, I um, the college owed me three semesters a sabbatical. Oh. I never took any sabbatical once I, I got uh, tenure. I just kept doing what I was doing because I loved it so much. And uh, so I had a visit from the president and the, and the dean of the faculty and stuff, and they said, You're, you are retired, Mr. Clemens. Don't <laughs> oh. come back. Go home. <laughs> <laughs> and they gave me, you know, three semesters, uh, full pay, but uh, they closed up my office and packed up everything and sent it to my house. It was awful. <laughs> I, I continued to get paid. I was at home. Sitting in the middle of twiddling my thumbs and what should I do now? Right. So that's, that's how I retired. And I took a trip to India and to uh, Nepal for six weeks. And uh, I went to New York for a while. I traveled. I went down to Atlanta and to Alabama. And I saw some relatives whom I hadn't seen for a while. I went to Overland, to Michigan, uh, to um, Ann Arbor to see my, my, my mentor who lives there, George Shirley. A great teacher. I went to see friends. So I traveled as a tourist. And uh, I began to think about what else I wanted to do with my life. Uh, and so I bought a house here in uh, Middlebury, and I, I decided to settle down here. And I've uh, t- technically I've been here ever since. Then um, they came along with this movie, Won't You Be My Neighbor? And uh, I thought I was going to be resting for a while. And boy, did they turn the apple cart upside down. Because <laughs> uh, I've been busier than ever going out to uh, San Francisco and other, many other cities. I went down to Dartmouth, where was the last place that Fred did a graduation. And there was quite a welcoming crew. My goodness. Uh, it's such a legacy that this man has left us with. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. Uh I, I am just amazed everywhere I go. I call it Fred Love. He uh, he left quite a mark, quite a gift to the society. I feel so honored to have been in the inner circle. Uh, and sometimes I ask, why did the universe pick me? Why did he pick me? Right. Because I, the older I get, the more I recognize what a unique status I have uh, to be in his heart the way I was. He really uh, gave me quite uh, an opportunity. I'm very blessed. I know it. Uh, you're listening to WMCK.FM and also watching us on Fayette TV Channel 77. On the phone line, we have Francois Clemens. Most of you know him as Officer Clemens from Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And I'm glad you brought up the uh, the movie uh, or the documentary that came out this past year, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Because 
Yeah. All the all the uh, the uh, hype surrounding it, and now we have a Tom Hanks film being filmed in Pittsburgh about the later years of Mister Rogers' life. Why do you think all of a sudden he is he, th- there's this popularity since his death in two thousand and three? Well, uh, once again. I have to tell you that I, it's all speculation. Mm-hmm. I have an idea, but I don't think I have a more better idea than anybody else. I think it's the times that we live in where empathy and civility and kindness, those kinds of things are in short supply in important high, high office. And I think Fred gives us hope that we haven't forgot how to be kind towards one another, how to be loving. Right. Uh, I, med- I meditate a lot, and in my meditations, the voices tell me that we are supposed to be kind to one another. And Fred used to say that. Kindness matters. We are supposed to care for one another. You know, uh, this sometimes is, is difficult to, to share with people how deeply I feel this, but we are one family on this earth. Uh, and the, the astronauts, when they went up in those rockets and circled around the earth they took photographs and those photographs i saw them had a profound effect on me to show uh what the earth looked like from that vantage point and it's such a small they call it you know a little blue dot right up there you look back and you realize how tiny we are and we're all so much of each other we breathe the same air we're not going to get off of this island, uh, this earth, without being with each other, for each other. We can make it a better experience or worse. And I think right now we're making it worse, not better. Uh, I'm, I, I'm not in despair or anything like that, but we have to remind people, these teams, over and over, that the greatest thing you can do is love one another, help one another empathize with those who are less fortunate. Those are the things you remember. Those are the things. You don't talk about the office or when you made a million dollars. What is that? You can't take it with you. Right. We need uh, this environment. You know, we are uh, we are the ones who are supposed to take care of the earth. We are left here, in my opinion, to take care of the earth, to, to make sure it still blooms, blossoms, and that it's healthy. And what are we doing? We're dumping the sludge and these PPMs or whatever they're called, mm-hmm. uh, P&M or P&R, P&F or FOAs, uh, you know, all these chemicals, this thing that we come up with in our agriculture and the water and in Lansing, you know, Michigan, what they did and right, down here in Pennington, yeah. we are destroying our earth and we're the caretakers. It's the air, you know, all this stuff that we burn in the cars and the factories. Don't get me started. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I have just uh, I'm becoming a fanatic about the things that we can control. Right. Those are things that we can't control. You know, the hurricane just came through Alabama. Yes. Okay. We're, we need to go down there and take the hands of those who have suffered and have lost everything. And we need to be there for them. Say, we will help you. We can help you. We are blessed. We are bountifully blessed. Not just blessed. Bountifully blessed. And we have enough. I, I've been going through my house for the year or so. I'm a, uh, uncluttering. I have, there, we have um, a, a shop here that takes secondhand stuff or things that you don't think you're going to use anymore. And as often as I do that, I've been doing it almost every single month, there's still stuff here that I'm trying to get rid of. <laughs> and and it's, every time I go by there, a friend of mine runs the place for, for this area. Yes. She says, oh, we're so happy you brought that coat or those shoes or those books or whatever, those glasses or those dishes. We are still, and I, I still have a lot of stuff here. When I look around, I say, damn, i got to get rid of this stuff. <laughs> we, you know, we, we as an American and as a society are such consumers. Yes. We have far more than we'll ever need. So I really feel that, that there's a energy in the universe telling us, help one another. Get rid of that extra stuff. Give it to someone who really appreciates it and needs it. And I feel this whole immigration thing in Mexico. Fred would never have stood idly by and saw those children 
separated from their parents. That is not right. And I, w- I was going to ask you, in your opinion, with what is going on in the world today, would Fred be standing on the sidelines or would he actually be vocal about it? Well, I don't know what you uh, quite, you know, his idea of vocal wouldn't be yours and mine. I'm an extrovert. Fred's an introvert. We got along very, very, very well because I talked and he listened. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean that I was, <laughs> it didn't mean that I was always saying something that needed to be said. Right. But I screamed and yelled and he listened and then he came up with some good solutions or we came up with them together. But our personalities work extraordinarily well together well that uh with what you just said with what you just said right there because if you looked at the way fred looked at things he may have a message but he would do it subtly for example when officer clemens came by the house in the neighborhood and fred was washing is he was waiting in the swimming pool and he would have you come in take your shoes off which in that period of time you never saw anything like that, let alone on a children's TV program. Never. And he, never. And he made it acceptable. Yes. As a matter of fact, we had had, before that show, we had had some discussions. Here we go again. And I was plain old bitching about the, the, the fact right. that there, everywhere I looked, there was so much discrimination based on color. Dr. King... Um, had, had been killed, and uh, uh, Robert Robert Kennedy had been killed. I had been a great admirer of John Kennedy. Yes. And Mar- uh, uh, it was just going on. Everybody, nobody was safe. This was a terrible thing, and I was feeling so frustrated. And Fred and I had worked this thing out where he was. He had become my guru, my teacher, my surrogate father. I recognized that I had a future with him. Mm-hmm. I wasn't fighting it anymore right but i i just unloaded so to speak on him uh and he patiently patiently listened oh he was the most patient person in the whole world and a lot of times in an unfair way i expected him to fix it it was not right and of course he couldn't just fix it but doing that scene was one way of addressing it and letting people know that any kind of discrimination and racism just was not right. And he didn't have a racist bone in his body. And he sat there and thought this up, that we were going to sit together as two friends and put our feet in the water together there. And, it, it you know, it resonates on three or four levels. And that's what I find so profound when I travel and when I talk like this, that sometimes I'm overcome by the profundity of this simple act because it not only addresses in an overtly way the racism that yes. was happening in the swimming pool and in the southern cities and in the schools, not just southern, because some northern cities in Ohio, Virginia, and West Virginia, they were having the same problems, and New York. But it also addresses the fact that Peter and Jesus in the Last Supper and what you might call a gentle altercation, because Peter did not want Jesus to wash his feet. And that entire episode had to do with one of worthiness and of cleanliness and of spirituality. Uh, on just all these different levels, because Jesus was exalted to his disciples. By that moment in time, they knew him as the Son of God. And for him to wash their feet was just totally anathema. It was unheard of. They would want to wash his feet. But he said, if you don't let me wash your feet, you are not my servant. You cannot be my disciple. Right. Well, that was a a profound rejection that none of them could tolerate. None of them. So they relented. And when they relented, it became a holy experience for them to try to get an even deeper understanding of who he was as well as who they were. Because he had told them the things that he does, they would one day do greater things. Now, they didn't understand what he was talking about, in my opinion. But he did say it. And they did write it down and share it with us in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And one day, they would do greater things. When Fred did that, 
being a man of God and a man who read his Bible, we often discuss the Bible. He was helping people to understand that this person who was gay, who was black, who was poor, and in many areas in our society rejected was the rock that he was building his church on, which had to do with love your neighbor as yourself. Right. And now, there are lots of so-called Christians in this country who do not love me as they love themselves. Now, I, know we, I don't know if you plan to go down this road, but I can't keep that to myself. If you call yourself a Christian, if you say you love Fred Rogers, you've got to get on board. Right. Because that's where he was coming from. Yeah. There was another thing in that piece, and I, I watched it again um, before I uh, called you this evening. And there was another thing there, too, and you made a comment that you didn't have a towel to dry your feet. And Fred said, go uh, ahead, use mine. And yes. And that was also very profound at the time. Heavy. I mean, really, Heavy. really, that he, I mean, he was pushing every envelope, but being Fred Rogers, the audience <laughs> didn't realize he was doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I thought about that so many times that time because I said, Fred, use your towel. Do you understand what you're doing and what you say? He said, yes, Fred. Yeah. Use my towel. That, that element of equality between us took me a long, long time to accept. I mean a long time. Because... I admired him in, in my own way as much as I loved him as a surrogate father. Yes. I still admired him. And I looked to him for advice and for leadership and for understanding, you know, all of that. I, I was still at that stage, very much so. And so I, the idea of using his towels, uh, I, I just simply had not grown up enough to understand and accept that. I. Now, we, we talked about it. Now, you made a comment, and, and um, I know that uh, you have publicly, um, and it's been years, but that you are gay, and you, you've, you've publicly yes. oh, announced yeah. that. But did you announce that while the program was still on, or did you do after the program, basically when he passed away? Um, that that is done because I understand that Fred was worried about the image of the program, that if something would get out there that may tarnish it, not to say that that would, but as you said a few moments ago about true Christians, they would have made the ones who claim they're true Christians may not have been able to understand that, that there was a, a, a gay individual that was on the program. Well, I never said a word about it okay. uh, publicly or uh, on the program, uh, as long as I was filming the program. Okay. And in fact, until like 2000. We, we, we understood that that was an economic issue. Okay. And there are many people who claim to be Christians, but they find some excuse to, to spew hate. Right. And he said, let's not give them ammunition. Okay. And also, there were, there were, you know, there were, um, what do you call it, sponsors who would have withdrawn their uh, support. So we, I never mentioned it, and I, I wasn't waiting for him to die to mention it. I was simply waiting for my relationship with the program to basically come to an end. And then I stepped out on my own, and I could do whatever I want to do. Right. But I always felt an obligation as long as I was involved with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Now, with the I thought he had the right with the documentary and, and 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 it was mentioned in there that you are was there any backlash um from the documentary because people then found out not that you were hiding it or anything but it just it, it was just public knowledge at that time uh well i have to qualify when i say yes there was okay and that is uh i received some uh some uh, emails on facebook from what i would call trolls mm. uh, some at least three of them this past year, which were pretty nasty, and Facebook kind of um, cut them off altogether. I, I complained once, and I asked them to keep an eye out for that kind of thing. Okay. Uh, and they they do, and they did, and it was quite minimal when you consider. Uh, the second thing, uh, half of that is, I have received 
many emails, many, from people who have said to me, my goodness, Mr. Clemens, I was so relieved when I heard that you were gay because I am gay. Right. Or I am trans. Mm -hmm. Or I am a lesbian. Mm -hmm. I watched Mr. Rogers, and I always wondered if he would love me too. Okay. Am I a part of his family? And that is a new, that's a new uh, aspect, I think, of Mr. Rogers. Maybe oh, I agree. Maybe something that's, that's come about because of the fact that I am openly gay. Right. And that they talked about it in the movie. I, when I talked with Morgan uh, Neville about it, I wanted to say it so that people would know it. And people have, you know, we, we are talking to an adult audience now. For the most part, I say they're from age 25 to 75. Okay. As opposed to the three or two-year-old kids who would not be asking yet about that. Mm -hmm. But there have been, uh, and when I visit college campuses, I did it at Dartmouth and at um, uh, uh, Sewanee and up at uh, 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 Berkeley, I make an effort to visit with the gay organizations on campus. That has become, and, I, and here at Middlebury, a, an Oberlin, I keep naming them because I say in my material that is sent out, if there's a gay organization on campus or in town that would like to talk to me, I will be very, very happy to make myself available. And almost 100%, they want to talk to me and share. And let me know that they are standing on my shoulders. Now, if, if say the program was still being done today, do you think Fred would address that issue or would he handled it the same way he did in the past? Um, it, it's so hard to say. It really is. Uh, because someone like Ellen, uh, Ellen DeGeneres. Yes. And, uh, that other Harry and Harry and something, there's another gay uh, gentleman on, uh, Harry and Elizabeth. Actually, what is, it? what is that program called? There are several programs that have openly gay characters. So I think that that's a gamble. It's possible, but I don't think you can predict. Uh, because Fred may have a subtle way of dealing with it that I never thought of. He's, he's, he's brilliant in a certain yes. way of coming up with those kind of solutions. So I don't think I could predict what he would do and how he would do. But I can tell you, he always had, I knew gay friends who were personal friends of his and mine who were very comfortable coming to visit us and spending time with us. Uh -huh. I don't feel there was any discrimination at all. At all. Plus, I don't feel it's my business to talk about it, but there were other gay artists on the program, and some of them were on fairly regularly. Oh, I didn't realize that. See, yeah. and, uh, again, oh, I... Yeah. But again, <laughs> I was two to eight, two to seven years old. I wouldn't know that, and I would not have never thought about no. it. So you're right, I guess... Well, it would have been something because honestly, if I didn't start looking at some of the stuff you've done recently, I probably wouldn't have realized that you were either. Um, so again, mm -hmm. I, I, I just think it's very interesting because I never knew. Um, now, well, I think the thing is, I, I look at the stuff that I did. Yeah. Uh, because I'm watching not, not only the movie, but I'm watching a lot of episodes that I had totally forgotten about. Mm -hmm. People are reminding me, they're sending me links yeah. and what have you. And as I travel, they're putting together different collages and stuff. And you cannot tell that I'm gay. I don't do anything any No, you don't. No. Anybody else. No. So I don't uh, totally buy into that a philosophy that you can tell no. that everybody's gay. You cannot tell. So I just do my thing. Uh, the difference was in my private life or how I might have behaved right. with some of my friends uh, uh, if I didn't show affection openly or that kind of thing, which, mm -hmm. you know, I've shared from time to time. It's not a, uh, a thing that I would advise anybody else to do. I lived a celibate life. Uh, I've talked to when I, a couple of magazines, a, um, a couple of people who have interviewed me, and I said to them, you know, I've never had a lover. Okay. And it doesn't mean I don't feel why I want to be intimate, but there was a sacrifice that came with staying on the show, on the program. Right. I think it was quite, uh, sometimes when I think about it, it was a heavy burden not to allow myself to get involved because I did not want a scandal. That's essentially what it was. I didn't want some photographs on the front of uh, 
Blank Blank Magazine or whatever it's called. I just um, felt I owed that to myself, to other black people, black actors and actresses, and to children and to Fred. Yeah. There were so many people I felt obligated to that I did not want that to be how they remembered me. And uh, the big thing, you know, that you talk about. So when you were on the program and after the first couple of years, did you realize what impact you had on children's lives? Uh, To be honest, no. It took me about, uh, to be honest, about 10 years uh, before I really realized the impact. And the reason I began to uh, realize it is Elaine and her crew in Pittsburgh they began to copy the uh, fan mail okay, and send them to me. And I saw the fan mail. Now, I don't know why they didn't do it in the beginning, but they did. And I didn't even think there was very much fan mail. But when they started sending me these packages of, of mail, I thought, oh, my God. And it was uh, like overnight. You know, it was an overnight success. That's an exaggeration, <laughs> but it gives you the idea. It was quite a while before they did that. Now, for example, this last year, I get lots and lots of mail. In fact, I went out today to the post office uh, to mail stuff and to buy manila envelopes and stuff. I started telling people they have to send self-addressed stamp envelopes. Right. Uh, because it, it gets to be expensive. Oh, I'm uh, sure it does. I, I'm a, oh, it does. I'm in a different place. Uh, now that I w- was, uh, you know, 25, 30 years ago. Yes. Occasionally I get a couple of pieces in the mail, but I, I mean, they come in on a regular basis around here, my goodness. <laughs> and when I go away, I have someone who looks after my house and I tell her, please don't forget to get the mail and bring it inside because it's stacked up. So I don't mind. Uh, believe me, I'm not complaining. So, so do you read? Uh, I've got it. Do you read everything you get? Oh, Lord have mercy, yes. <laughs> I, I, I just, yes. Uh, you know what? Fred conditioned me okay. on uh, how, to, how to respond and how he responded. And I sat in his office many a day uh, watching him write and talk to people who had sent him in mail. So he set a high bar. And to, in my opinion, that's the only way to respond to uh, the letters that people take their time. So to write to him. Are, are you, with the van mail you get now and then when you perform in public at, at, at your different venues, do people come up to you and still refer to you as Officer Clemens? Oh, yes. Yes. As a matter of fact, you want me to tell you something that happened that probably got surprised. Oh, please um, do. One of, the, one of those times, uh, yes, me, <laughs> I was going out to the airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know how it puts you to the... Um, through the uh, metal detector. Yes. And I was going through the metal detector, and the young man who was supposed to... I, I've had two knee replacement surgeries. So, you know, you have to walk through with your hands up. Yes, yes. Uh, you can't get through the normal one. So I was walking through, and the young man comes to me and says, you're Officer Clemens, aren't you? I said, yes. <laughs> he said, forgive, forgive me, sir, but I can't search you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I have too much respect for you. I cannot touch you intimately like that. Can I ask someone else? And he excused himself. That that is that is really that that's impressive. It really is. I, I had no idea. And as it turns out, all of them that who were there turned and looked at us and said, What's the matter? And he said, There's nothing wrong. I, I just know who he is, and I can't do that. Right. That that is so, that that, and that 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 actually says a lot about you because of that young man himself had that much respect for you because of what you did on that program. Yes, but it says a lot about both of us. It yeah. says a lot about him. I w- I went to a couple of museums while I was away after I got the honorary doctorate at Tawani. We were driving down to Montgomery and. There's the Hanging Museum in Montgomery. That's a very sad place to be. Uh-huh. Uh, the memory and the, the displays. You know, in that museum, they, they, they recognized who, who I was. We were in that museum where all of that devastation and pain was mentioned. 
and we were singing It's a Beautiful Day in this Neighborhood. <laughs> and I got chilled, and we sat down together. All the, the kids in that museum were students at the local colleges and stuff there uh -huh. in Montgomery. They, they recognized me, and they said, we needed to have that in here. It's so depressing sometimes, Mr. Clemens. Yes. And you, you're coming here today with not an accident. That is. That that that, that actually leaves me speechless is what it does, and that's very hard to do. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, it's hard to believe. <laughs> We've almost done an hour. We're about a few minutes shy of an hour this evening. And I, what? Yeah. <laughs> we have to do this again. I well, I was just going to ask you if, whenever the movie's released in October, if you wouldn't mind coming back again, and we can talk more about that. And um, well, of course I will. But you know, I'm not in it. I've, I've done I, everything except go to Pittsburgh and kick the door down and start singing. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's perffectly fine because because I I've I've talked to um I I've reached out to David Newell and I've also um Betty Aberline I've also reached out to and Betty said she'll do the program in October. But I'd like to do one with each one of you because um, I think it's very interesting to hear the perspective and hear more about Fred's life yeah. because I think Fred is somebody that everybody should still be looking up to today because he, oh, he, totally he, he was just an amazing individual. And I just think it's great that there are people like you that are willing to share his legacy with, with everybody oh, else. He, and, and now with the movies, it's actually going to continue that legacy. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm coming out with a memoir in about two or three months. So oh, cool. Be on the lookout. You, oh. can, you can call me up and we can talk about the book. Oh, that sounds great. That really does. I really appreciate that. All right. But, I'll let you know when it's published. But before I let you go tonight, is there anything else you want to bring up that I have not mentioned, that I have not asked you about? Uh, no, I think that that's... Um, you've covered a lot of territory, <laughs> and I'm very happy about it. That's, that's basically it, really. Well, I really appreciate uh, really appreciate you taking time this evening and being part of the program. And um, again, it was an honor for me to talk to you because, as I as I said to you when I spoke to you earlier today, whenever my daughter heard me on the phone with your answering machine, yeah. she looked at me and she goes, "Dad, what's wrong?" I said, "I'm four years old again." I said, "Officer Clemens is on the <laughs> other end of the phone." I said, "I never thought I'd have that opportunity," but. Uh, I'm very glad you called, and, and we're friends on uh, on Facebook. There's yes. a lot of good stuff going on on Facebook. I tell people that. Yeah. But, you know, um, because they always point out the negative. But, but a lot of positive. Please let me know when the book comes out, because I'd love to um, talk to you about the book. And again, when the movie comes out in October, I'd love to be able to talk to you then. Okay. Thank you very much. So, um, Francois, thank you very much for being a part of my program tonight. I really appreciate it, and we'll talk to you real soon. Okay, God bless. God bless you, too. Thank you, thank you again. Have a great night. You, too. Bye-bye. Francois Clemens, as most of us know him as Officer Clemens, hard to believe that was one hour. Really, that time flies when you're having having fun like that it, it it really does and i really appreciate him taking time with us this evening and um we'll be posting all this information online to the podcast at italkradio.us it's also um on wmck.fm also on fayette tv channel 77 and also you can check out the interview at online with billalexander.com Later this week on Thursday night, we'll be talking to the author V.R. Kraft, and we're going to be talking to him about his new book, which is um, Fail to the Chief. And what's really interesting about this book is it sounds like really real, but it's fictional. It's actually um, like a survivor-type program, but instead of finding a winner to stay on the island, as I do air quotes, um, what it is is it's how we're going to possibly elect our next president on a reality show. It's not that far-fetched, really. It really 
It really is not. But again, it was uh, it, it, that's going to be on Thursday night with VR Kraft. We're going to be talking to him, and we have other things lined up in the next few weeks, and we'll share those with you on Facebook and also at online with BillAlexander.com. Again, a big thank you to Francois Clemens for joining us this evening and talking about his life and his career with Fred Rogers and and um, working in children's television. And again, it was very, uh, very humbling to be able to talk to him this evening. But as I always say, I think I hear music in the background. Is it coming? It's going to be here real soon. But anyhow, we're going to wrap everything up tonight. We'll talk to you next time. Don't forget to check me out on uh, WMCK with America's Classic Standards and also with online with Bill Alexander. Everybody, you have a great night. I am out of here, and we'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly, Bill Alexander. Well, I'm tired, and i got to go home. I'm tired, and i got to go home. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com. If you've been a renter, you know it's stressful to find the perfect place. But Zillow Rentals make it easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find a rental that's big enough for entertaining your friends, but small enough they won't crash all weekend. Find your sweet spot on ZillowRentals.com.